This morning, um, we're continuing our service on living, living faith, or living faith out. And we're going to look very briefly at the subject of technology. I'm not going to preach. Uh, did somebody say, thank the Lord for that? I'm not, I'm not going to preach. Instead, we're going to do two things this morning. Um, later on, I'm going to uh, interview David about one of his relationships. The relationship he has with his mobile phone. <laughs> it got you worried, didn't it? Um, but before I do that, I'm going to talk. But I'm going to sort of give you a sort of bit of a macro view about technology. Um, not that I'm an expert. I'm fascinated by the subject and um, read a little about the subject. Um, and really, the purpose of this morning is to try and get you to think, not just do stuff, but think about what you're doing and why you're doing it, and also where. In particular, I'm going to talk about where technology could potentially head in the future. And this has major ramifications for every human being globally period. And it has ramifications for you, particularly because you're a Christian, and we as Christians are supposed to be demonstrating a way of living that's faithful, not to the current uh, cultural climate and technological innovation, but faithful to God, who's uh, creator of all. Is that all right? Good. So first thing, a bit big picture, and then secondly, uh, we're going we're gonna to interview David. So there we go. Let's have this first picture. Anybody remember this? This is, this is the very original mobile phone. Anybody have one of these? You would have been, uh, John, a few rich people here, probably businessmen, um, or possibly the other person with their hand up, a thief that obviously obtained loads of money from somebody. Uh, just joking, Stace. But uh, this was... Uh, <laughs> it's true, yeah. I, I, yeah I, I sort of thought I'd better make an apology just in case. Anyway, there's the mobile phone. Uh, it weighed 10 pounds. <laughs> and cost a good deal more than ten pounds. There's a, that's a and here's here's one just one example of a mobile phone today. Um, your mobile phone, if you have one with us that looks something like the one on the right rather than on the left, is one million times more powerful than the mainframe system that put man on the moon in 1969. One million times more powerful. Staggering thought, of course, we still continue to call it a mobile phone, but it's not really, is it? It's a mobile computer, really, isn't it? So you're carrying this mobile computer in your hands, but we call it a mobile phone. Here's another picture. Do you remember this? <laughs> the first IBM computer in 1981, I think uh, early on. Yeah, I, I use one of these. Anybody use one of these? I'm sure you have. Those great IBM computers weighed a tonne. And uh, where you know you could you could actually pigeon post was faster at times than this IBM computer, but seriously, uh, this is the computer of uh, 1981, uh, mass produced by IBM, and then uh, on obviously on the right we've got a more modern day equivalent, um, and uh, and what's staggering is, computer technology today is one trillion times faster than the technology of 1983. They're, they're figures that are sort of beyond, really hard to get your head around, aren't they? One trillion times faster than the technology of 1981. How technology has grown. And then, I thought I'd do this just for merit, because this is, a, this is a, this, some of you will have a laugh at this, but this is the next picture. Does anybody know what that is on the left? Anybody, anybody in accounts in the 70s 
that were a little bit behind the times. Do you know what it's called? It's called a plus adder. Well, that's what we called it in MS. So when I first joined MS in 1976, and uh, I did an attachment to the accounts department, there were, there, were, there were people in our office who could operate this faster than you can operate a calculator. I'll tell you, I've never seen anything like it. It's sort of a rather weird piece of kit. I still had one up until about five years ago. Not that I used it, but I just kept it because it was good fun. So obviously the digits, I won't try and explain it because it's more complicated than the calculator. But <laughs> and of course today there's the calculator here. Uh, one expert um, whose book I'm going to recommend, or a couple of books I'm going to recommend to you, a guy called Nigel Cameron, uh, who's UK-born but now lives in America, and his uh, role is to think about ethics and technology. He says this about 2019. The digital revolution is only at its beginnings. There's a staggering thought, isn't it? Your computer is one trillion times faster than the computer that you may have used in 19. 81 when they were launched, but the digital revolution is at its beginnings. One prediction says that technology will develop in the next decade 300 times faster than the previous decade. Some of you will know more about this than I do, but it's a staggering thought, isn't it? That in the next, what are the possibilities of the next 10 years, let alone as you think about, if I think about Grace and Jacob, what, where will technology be? when they're 18, 20, or beginning to work. But the question he says is this, uh, and there's many tremendous things about technology, but he says this, he goes on, the fundamental question facing the human race is whether the 21st century will be the century during which technology rules the roost, or is it gonna be humans that rule the roost? And this is a really critical question uh, for us as believers, but for us generally in the world. So some real challenges. Let's just talk a little bit more um, about uh, technology as it is today. It's, I'm gonna be really quick because we've got a short session this morning. Um, but I want us to maybe look at a few more facts. Here's somebody you may well recognize, hopefully. Anybody know who this is? This is Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg is aged 34, invented Facebook in his garage in uh, 2008, 2009. Uh, in 2009, um, he had uh, 100 million people using Facebook as it was when he first invented it. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg is no longer making things in his garage. His net worth is now something like $71 billion. And uh, the company that he now owns is the fifth largest company globally. Staggering, isn't it? And if uh, wealth and power is your objective, we all fall short of Mark Zuckerberg's success, don't we? But remarkably, he's got a massive portfolio of companies, and we'll look at that a little bit in a minute. Uh, his power is immense and growing. Um, Single-handedly, he controls the social media space over a third of the world's population, single-handedly, controls. So he, he owns Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, Snapchat. There are 79 different companies Mark Zuckerberg owns. In terms of 
power and influence. He's probably, we know, Mr. Trump likes to think he's a very powerful, influential man, which of course he is, and we would acknowledge that. But uh, I think we'd be naive to think that somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, age 34, isn't enormously powerful. Would you agree with me? I mean, who has an audience that's a third of the world's available population? I say available population because Facebook's banned in China uh, because of the possibilities of what it might do to them culturally, politically, etc. Um, and of course, you probably you don't realize this, but Mark Zuckerberg is very open that he designed Facebook to be addictive. This was his objective, to produce a social media app for as many people as he could possibly access that would become addictive. And what's behind this ultimately, and I'm not saying Mark Zuckerberg's evil, not at all, but is really a, a, a the ambition for power, influence, and wealth, isn't it? Would you agree with me? Uh, maybe some of you don't, but... Uh, what's more, what's really frightening is, um, if, you, if you're a Facebook user, is that he probably knows ev uh, uh, a tremendous amount about every single person that uses Facebook. In fact, there was a young Swedish man that took him to the European Court in 2011 and asked him to produce all the information he held on him, and he produced 1,200 pages of PDF on one of those three billion people that access his information. And he found conversations that he thought had been deleted. He found emails that were uh, in his phone and he thought were private. And he found contact information of people who he thought was confidential. Mark Zuckerberg holds that information. Hard to believe, isn't it? But computers don't get much bigger than they used to be. He holds that information on you this morning. He knows every search you've made, probably, on Facebook or related to Facebook. Incred so I, what I'd like to suggest is that, that you know, we, we have to wake up to the fact that there is a big thing called personal profit and personal gain that motivates something like Facebook and associated social media app applications. Is that fair to say? What people are interested in is your money and your spend. And there's a thirst for more profit in our world, isn't there? And profit ultimately sometimes comes at the sacrifice of people. And this is where we as Christians need to stand up, not to sound like Luddites, but to articulate clearly God's plan for humankind that might be slightly different to where our world is heading, particularly in the area of technology, perhaps. Uh, there's not much to talk about. I haven't got a lot of time because um, I've, I've probably spoke for too long already, but to talk about the future, but we'll maybe do some of that. Let's... Uh, do this. It's estimated by 2025 that um, many homes uh, across the world will have a hundred connected devices in operation in their home in some shape or form. That doesn't mean a hundred mobile phones, God forbid, but, uh, but that you would have um, uh, over a hundred different devices doing different things in your home that are all related to technology. You know now, apparently, you can switch your heating on from your mobile phone. There's not much you can't do from your mobile phone, really. Is there all sorts of stuff you can book a flight, speak to anybody globally, anywhere in the world. I mean, it's a remarkable piece of technology. And as technology grows, it's estimated that by 2025, technology will be driving nine trillion pounds worth of value. It'll be, wor it'll be, it'll be worth one-tenth of our global economy. And this really didn't exist 
probably, we could say, 30 years ago, though, you know, one could argue some sort of computer technology was available before, but computer technology available to the masses. So in 30 years, a market that didn't exist is now worth one-tenth one of the global economy. It's remarkable. And then there are other things that are being, being, being developed, um, and I'm sure you know about some of these things. There's something called AI, artificial intelligence, and uh, the area of robotics, and we haven't got time to talk about all of those things, but maybe a little bit about AI would be um, something that is interesting. So voice-recognized technology is uh, growing at a rapid pace. You've probably recognized that by using your own mobile phone. You know, when you press that little microphone, I've got a little microphone on by my keyboard, and I can say what I want to say rather than write the text. And, and I would say, in the main, <laughs> if I'm speaking clearly and not with a black country accent, it, uh, <laughs> it, is, it is pretty accurate. That technology is going to advance massively in the next 10 years. In fact, it's estimated that when you ring a call center in the future, within very long, I would say within five years when you ring a call center, you won't speak to a person. You'll speak to artificial intelligence. But you won't know you're speaking to artificial intelligence. So well developed will artificial intelligence be. Could sound, it, they could have regional accents, all sorts of things, you won't know. And that will put a million people out of work across the world. I'm not, again, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Technology also creates jobs, so we have to be careful not to make technology sound like the devil incarnate. But we, do, but we just need to realize that technology is accelerating at a massive rate. And, uh, and some maybe we'll talk about, uh, in, maybe later in the year, about God's purpose for humankind. One of them, one of God's purpose for humankind, of course, is to work. So when something starts to invade the marketplace, we do need to wake up and ask some questions about it. But also, uh, I'm told, I went to this great, this, I know some of this because I went to a great, a, great, a great seminar on the subject and I read a few books. But, uh, soon, apparently, you won't, your, your, cons your consultation with your doctor will be done via AI. So you'll ring up and you'll speak to somebody who sounds exactly like your doctor, but won't be your doctor. And you'll talk to this artificial intelligence, this computer at the end of the line, and it will be able to diagnose what's wrong with you. And what's more, everybody says it will be exponentially more accurate than a doctor. Why is that? Because AI uses collective intelligence. So if there are 60 specialists in the area of hip joints, 60 specialist intelligence will be held in this computer. So if you ring up with a problem with your hip and your normal doctor is no expert on bones, hips, and joints, he knows he... I mean, our GPs are amazing, aren't they? Would you agree with me? Staggering group of people who have to know amazing amounts about the way our human biology works. But this computer, of course, collects everybody's intelligence on the subject of hips and will give you a much more accurate diagnosis than you could possibly get from your GP. There's a thought, isn't it? Do you believe me? Some of you are looking at me in disbelief, like, oh, that will never happen. <laughs> but it's, it's on its way. And, and maybe in some ways, if we want a national health system for the future, maybe that's not a bad thing. Because currently, we haven't got enough money to support the health service that we've got. And I think the health service we have, again, is an outstanding, uh, an outstanding service for us as a, as a nation. Uh, staggering thoughts, aren't they? And then finally, maybe I'll just finish with this and then I'll interview David. The whole area of robotics. Um, and there are six different types of robot. And I'm just going to talk about one of them. 
And uh, let's have a look at this. Anybody know where this is? No, it's not Amazon. Amazon aren't as clever as this company. Are clever in different ways, but not clever. This is a Cardo. Yeah, somebody said a Cardo. This is a Cardo. Cardo have a warehouse, and it's 18 acres. 18 acres of warehouse. And in each of those little white boxes that you can see sort of on the floor, in one there's chocolate biscuits, and in another there might be, I don't know, strawberry jam, and in the next one there's whatever we like, small teasers or something like that. And uh, this little pod that you can see, which is about a meter square, runs backwards and forwards over these little boxes, picking up an order. So here's a Cardo. Cardo, great company, very imaginative, extremely innovative. Most retailers can't make home delivery pay. A Cardo say, we've got to make this pay. How do they do that? Eliminate human intervention. So in this warehouse, 18 acres big, this little pod goes along collecting different bits and pieces for your order. Well, if it starts to run out of battery, it knows it's going to run out of battery, so it goes back into the docking station and says to Harry next to it, who, uh, Harry, I've run out of battery, can you carry on with this order? He carries on and picks the order, and when Joe has recharged his battery, at some point, they all go off to the, to the, to the delivery bay with an order complete, no human intervention. This particular 18 acres is run by one man and his dog. I think the dog's there to occupy the man, and the man there partly to occupy the dog, but it's in case the technology goes down, we've got somebody on site. And I was in this seminar, and somebody was saying, the only challenge is that there is human intervention at the point of trying to get this stuff on the back of the lorry. And if somebody says this, somebody in the room puts their hands up and says, all right, if I can just interrupt for a moment, I'm working on a system to eliminate the human work in terms of putting these items from, from loading bay onto lorry. And then you know what's coming, don't you? Technology is being developed for, and Anza, one step ahead of everybody. <laughs> you, you won't even have a person deliver it for you. Do you know what I mean? And you always go, this is really impossible. <laughs> no, 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 no. So eventually you'll have a system of picking, selecting your shopping, and delivery of your shopping that is all done by AI and robotics. Staggering future, isn't it? Of course, there's lots of questions to be asked, I, I, I think, from a, from a Christian point of view, about the rights and wrongs of some of that. And maybe we'll look at that at another day. Is that okay? You're all all right with all of that. You all look a bit stunned. Yeah. So, so one of the questions we need to ask, and Dave will talk a little bit about this, and then I will, I will, I will sort of shut up, is what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? So we need a framework for us all to understand what does it mean to be human? So for Ken, what does it mean for Ken to be human? And there, the only source that we can go to is to find a biblical framework for what it means to be human. And, um, and as I say, very briefly, one of those things is God has ordained that we should all work. Because God is creative and God is a worker. Made in his image, we too are made to be workers. This is one of the unique attributes that humans have that's different to the animal world. We have a calling to work. And uh, so anything that potentially, and some thinking is that in 50 years, only 60% of the living population will be working, the other 40% won't need to, we, we do need to sort of, as believers, begin to think about this, don't we? And maybe challenge uh, what 
yeah, challenge the status quo, if you can call technology a status quo, because it's ever moving. Okay, that's enough. So how do we ground some of this? Let's think about this personally. What are we going to do? What can we do? Um, I'm going to talk to Dave about his relationships, or no, his relationship with his mobile phone. So why don't you welcome David as we do an interview with David. I think Dave will talk about a book, book recommendation as well, but here's a couple if you want to explore this. This is, um, they're not complicated books, really simple books. This is called God and My Mobile, written by Nigel Cameron. And uh, it's brilliant for small groups as well, because you can read a chapter, really easy to understand. It's not complicated, really simple. But then at the end, he asks some questions that you could possibly discuss. Or maybe even as a family, if you felt you could, they're short chapters, read a chapter. And then he asks some really profound questions for you to sort of, think through and think about. He doesn't advocate that we abandon technology, but he does advocate that we are in control of technology. Technology isn't in control of us. And then he's also written another book, and I've only just started it, but it's a book on robotics. The robots are coming, us, them, and God. And in this, when I've talked a little bit about God's purpose for humankind, he talks a little bit about what he thinks the Bible has to say about the advent of this massive technological initiative called robotics. So, okay, well, we'll try and publish that information. In fact, I think uh, you've got a, a little handout, and on the back of that, uh, certainly one of those books. So, Dave, great to have the opportunity to talk to you about technology. You're growing a beard, mate. Are you? No, it'll be off tomorrow. It'll be off tomorrow. <laughs> See that? I thought you, got, that you can have one of those long, trendy beards. <laughs> but <also. laughs> so, David, tell us a little bit about your life online. Morning, everybody. So when I said to my daughters last weekend, oh, I'm being interviewed next Sunday um, about living my faith online, both of them said, but Dad, you're not online. <laughs> By which they meant I'm not on social media. Uh, I am on a platform called LinkedIn, which is a work-based social media platform, but I'm not on Facebook. And I should just offer an apology. I did join Facebook last summer when my older daughter went abroad so that I could follow the organization that she was working for. And I think lots of you have tried to friend me on Facebook, and I've just ignored all of you. Um, so I'm really sorry it's not personal. I'm not on Facebook. So am I at all qualified to talk about use of mobile phone and my life online? Definitely, I think so. Um, I have a phone. It's provided to me by the firm that I work for. I don't have a personal phone, so this is the phone that the firm provides for me. So on there I have work emails, obviously work appointments. Uh, I text occasionally, I WhatsApp quite a lot. We've got a WhatsApp group as a family, which is great when Bethany is abroad. Um, and then I'm a very avid follower of the news, or have been, not so much now, I'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, I'm an avid follower of the weather. And especially, and some of you won't understand this, I know Adrian doesn't, I'm a massive football fan. So I use my phone a lot to follow football. And of course, that's all made worse now because the Ashes is now being played. So I follow the cricket uh, as well. So I can be a bit of a football sport obsessive. So I use my phone quite a lot and sometimes too much. Great. So um, perhaps, Dave, you could tell us a little bit about how technology 
has impacted you, how it's, what effects it had on, on your life then? So I want to say it's got, it's got great power for good. So uh, when Bethany, my older daughter, is in Latin America, we as a family can see her and speak to her on our phones through WhatsApp for no charge, which I just think is amazing. It's a brilliant way of keeping in touch with her. So that's a wonderful thing to be able to keep in touch with people who we don't see very often. I think it's great for research. I think it's great for listening to uh, people preach that you admire. It's great even for sharing the gospel. But so, so I want to make clear I'm not anti-phone, and I'm not suggesting that we should all put down our phones, but I would say that I've noticed three impacts that my phone use has had on me. The first is distraction. Distracted from people when I'm with them, and distracted from tasks that are in front of me um, that I've been doing when I've got my phone to hand. The second is information overload. Um, I think what comes into my phone contributes to my mind being so full of information that there's no space, no quietness, no silence, no space for reflection. And I think thirdly also I would say that my phone has had an impact negatively on my mental well-being. Um, I think as I became obsessed with being on top of the news, as you take all of that in, particularly if you take to heart many of the terrible things that happen in our world, but also many of the values that you read about and unconsciously take in through the news, I think that can be very discouraging, very uh, much tending to create fear. So I, I think that those three things, Adrian, I just think distraction, information overload, and an, an impact on my mental well-being. But I want to make clear that my phone is not to blame. You did this to me. <laughs> It's really just a tool that brings out some of the things that are already in my heart. Fascinating. I think the whole issue of distraction is a massive one, isn't it? Particularly when it comes to relationships. Uh, you know, you, I think I was at the gym the other day and watched a guy, uh, you've got to be careful not to point the finger, because as you point the finger, four are always pointing back, aren't they? Or actually three are pointing back. Um, sat down with his two little boys, got their mobile technology out and gave it to judgmental about that situation. Isn't it? But I felt slightly deeply saddened by the fact that here's an opportunity to talk to his two little boys and engage them in conversation, but instead he's distracted. And he's almost encouraging them to be distracted from human conversation through mobile technology. So I think it, it sort of really resonates. So tell us about, you've been reading this great book, haven't you? Um, way, uh, is it 12 ways that um, your mobile phone affects you? <laughs> and so maybe you can tell us a little bit about having, 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 having read it, that's a little bit about the book and, and maybe the impact the book's had on you as well. Yep, so I read the book uh, in April, read it in two days. Um, it's an absolutely outstanding book, I would say. It's called 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. If you want to know about it, come and see me afterwards. Um, it's a guy who's very positive about phone use. Uh, he's a guy who works online, so he's definitely way ahead of me in his knowledge of technology and very pro-technology, but he has thought really deeply about the impact that our phones have on us, and I was really impressed, in fact, really challenged by the book. Um, obviously, as the title suggests, he highlights 12 ways in which our phones change us, uh, but three in particular stuck out to me, so can I just mention, mention those? So the three that stood out to me were really because they resonate with some of the things I've just said about the impact on me. The first thing is, he says, we are addicted to distraction. We are addicted to distraction. 
And what he points out is that we are overloading ourselves and therefore overloading each other with triviality. With triviality. With things that really just don't matter. Our hearts and our minds are full of things that don't matter, and so we've lost sight of what's really valuable and eternal. I think I'd thought about that before, so that wasn't so much of a new thing for me, but the second thing really spoke to me, the second thing that really stood out for me, he says that our phones have shattered our concentration. They have ruined our concentration. So the world of our phones, true for me, I'm sure it's true for you, is all about what's instant, quick, immediate, and immediately pleasurable. And so the effect of that, he says, is that we are losing our ability to concentrate, to apply ourselves to anything long-term, anything that takes effort. And I would say, if you take nothing else away from this morning, that, to me, is really serious. Really serious, because anything in our lives that's valuable takes effort and is long-term. That's true of relationships, and that's true of lifelong engagement with the Bible, and I think we're in danger of throwing away both. And then the third thing, interestingly, which I'll spend a moment longer on, is he talks about how we're, our phones lead us to missing out on real life, which is ironic because, and I'm sure the younger people in the congregation will tell me this is sort of old news now, but there's this FOMO, fear of missing out, and that's why people use their phones. That used to be an acronym. I don't know if it is now. That's why people use their phones and social media because they don't want to miss out. But actually, he says they lead us to miss out. How do they do that? By basically cutting us off from engagement with people and from the world around us. We can close ourselves down to the world that's around us. Let me give you three examples. The first example, the other day, I was on that little train that goes from Starbridge Town up to Starbridge Junction. It's a curious little thing. And uh, there were 14 people on there, including me. Uh, Ten sat there like this on their phones. I think five, six, or seven of those ten had their earphones on or earplugs in as well, completely closed off to anyone or anything around them. So I see that all the time on the the train when I'm traveling into work. I'm sure you do too. The second thing uh, was something that I picked up from the book. Perhaps we can have the picture up, Jane, if you've got that picture. Some of you will have seen this. So this was a few years ago in Boston, in America, and what these people are doing is they've gone along to a film premiere, and they're there to see all the stars, like Johnny Depp, as if I know who he is, but anyway, he's a famous film star. They've gone along to see all the actors and actresses, and this is the moment when those stars walk past. So these guys are not there to see the film, they're there to see the actors, and this is the moment as as all the guys walk into the the cinema, to the, to the premiere of the film. And this is what this book says about this photo. In the frame, I see 44 onlookers tightly pressed together, at least 30 visible smartphones raised up in the air, cameras on. One middle-aged man, nothing wrong with being a middle-aged man, in the front row, fidgets with an app, no doubt trying to get his camera to work. <laughs> Almost everyone else is ready for the moment, holding phones straight up as high as their arms will go, to get the clearest possible picture or video of the procession. This means that almost everyone in the picture is looking away from Johnny Depp, gazing upward into their phones in comical posture. But foregrounded among the throng of Ray's smartphones stands one elderly woman, her arms leisurely folded across her chest and resting on the top of the railing. She looks directly at the actors with a carefree repose and a small grin. She's not trying to capture 
or share anything, not trying to grab a picture or a moving frame to share online later. She is simply enjoying the moment. To her left stands a younger woman who holds her phone out to record the scene, but whose eyes are firmly fixed on the event before her, not on her screen. Unlike the others, she has the nous to hold her phone, but also to enjoy the moment with her own eyes. And then the third example uh, was from someone in the church family who's not here today. They talked about how they were driving through a mountain range abroad. Their son was in the back, and this couple were enjoying these stunning views. They noticed that their son was in the back playing on a computer game. They said to him, I won't say his name, look at the amazing views. He said, it's okay, I'm recording them on my phone, I'll look later. What we're doing is ruining the power of memory, this book says which is the most precious camera that you can have. There's nothing wrong with taking photos. Photos are fantastic, but we're losing the power of memory. So we can think we've captured a great moment, but we don't really see it. That's a long answer, but those are three of the things I noticed from the book. Brilliant, Dave. So, so now having read the book, if you're like me, I read lots of books, and then you sort of wonder, have I done anything that, about what you read about? Do you know what I mean? And obviously there are some books that you read that you can't immediately do something different as a consequence, but I, th I think you've, you've sort of decided to take some action. So tell us a little bit about what those are. Yeah, so effectively immediately after reading the book, so that's April, May, June, July, and part of August, I've made some changes to my use of my phone, and I don't put this forward as anything other than small incremental changes. It's not necessarily a pattern for you to follow, and it's certainly not me polishing a halo and saying, look, I've got my phone under complete control. I don't think I have. But I've made some small changes, and I think they've cumulatively had a positive effect um, for me. So I'll give you a, the most silly, trivial example first. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went to watch the Wolves. Fantastic. Um, that's my passion. Come on, beat Leicester today. Um, so I went to watch the Wolves, and I decided before I went that instead of messaging family and friends at each sort of key moment of the game, I would do that at halftime or at the end and just enjoy the spectacle. Sounds like a really trivial thing, um, but I just decided to enjoy the moment so I could remember it rather than uh, messaging family and friends. More importantly, other changes that I've made are um, I no longer, normally anyway, no longer make my phone the first thing I look at in the morning. So uh, it's usually my room charging up. That's another issue. You could perhaps have it in the kitchen charging up. Um, so I'll immediately unplug it and just pop it in my bag for work. And I won't look at it for the first hour of the day. I normally quickly look at emails when I get onto the train as I'm traveling into the office. So that's not an unbreakable rule. Some of you will know that Bethany, my older daughter, has been ill. So obviously when I was messaging her at night before going to bed, asking how she was, definitely would look at the message as soon as I woke up. I was keen to know how she was. Maybe I shouldn't, but... So I'm not legalistic about it, but I've, not, I've made that change. Secondly, I've decided to leave my phone at home when I can. Um, so it's with me today just to have illustrative purposes, but normally now when I come to services, I don't have it with me. Uh, if we take Rebecca to a horse riding lesson on a Saturday morning, we're going to be out for three hours. Philippa's with me. She's got her phone. She's much more in control of her phone than I am of mine. So I will leave mine at home. So anyone who wants to contact us urgently can do that through Phil. It's not necessary for me to have it with me. I'm just trying to put my phone uh, in its place. Similarly, at work, when I go into a meeting, I've now started to leave my phone on my desk, hopefully on silent if I remember. Um, again, if anything's urgent, one of the team will contact me and drag me out of the meeting. I don't need to... That's a meeting in the office. Obviously, if I'm traveling, then, then I will take it with me. 
Um, I've also changed my news diet. There's nothing wrong with following the news, but now this is just helpful for me personally. I look at the news pretty much just once a week. Um, I still look at the football way too much. Um, so that's something still that's a challenge. And then finally, I've take, I take breaks from using the phone altogether. So just yesterday as an experiment, knowing that I do this today, I didn't look at my phone from going to bed on Friday night to getting up this morning, just to try and put it in its place, just left it on the floor, and that, that was it. So just small changes, but I think they've been really beneficial. Before we go any further, there's this football thing I need to... <laughs> can be a demon, you know. Um, I jest. So in terms of... <laughs> so, um, in terms of thinking about issues practically, Dave, what, what, what do you think are the main things that we need to go and think about when we leave this morning in terms of mobile technology in particular? Oh, this is a bit I most hesitate about because I'm really hesitant to say, right, now you all need to go away and do X, Y, and Z. But I think it perhaps is helpful to make some suggestions, and they're, they're no more than suggestions. I think it is about putting our phones in their proper place. It's about us ruling our phones rather than our phones ruling us. Maybe that's not an issue for any of you, but I think it was starting to become an issue for me. Um, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I think it's verse 12, that says, uh, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial, and I will not be mastered by anything. So our phones are permissible, absolutely, it's Difficult to conceive of life without them, probably now. But they're not always beneficial in the way that we use them. And they shouldn't master us. So in terms of practical things, I guess you could try some of the things that I've done. But m probably more importantly than any of the things that I've done, I'd say um, I'd probably lay out three challenges. One, or maybe four. One, can you fast your phone for 24 hours or 48 hours, say once a month? Can you do that? Can you say to your phone, if you have to do it literally, say do it literally, you are not ruling over me for the next 24 hours. You might have to prepare for that depending on your business or personal situation, but can you fast your phone for 24 hours a few times a year? Secondly, and this is something that Philip has been very strong on in our family, and I think it's absolutely right, don't have your phone with you when you're sharing a meal with other people. Um, as a family, we now make that a rule, and it's positive. The phones might be in the kitchen where we're eating, but they're not at the table. So um, we concentrate on each other and the food. Um, so I, I'd really recommend that. I think mealtimes are a great time of fellowship. The Bible shows us that. Jesus loved mealtimes, so let's love our mealtimes and leave our phones out of them. And then thirdly, I'd say, how about taking on something that requires long periods of unbroken concentration? rather than the instant, instant, instant switching from one thing to another that our phone feeds us. So read a book, a hard copy book. Read a book. And then when you've done that, read a really long book that takes you a few weeks to read. Um, or if you're not into reading books, which many people aren't, paint or create something that creates that, that requires time away from your phone that's undistracted requires unbroken attention um, do some writing i know that some of you are good writers do that with your phone out of the way something that requires concentration and then the final thing i'd say is maybe consider reading a book of the bible out loud 
a long book of the Bible, not Jude, because that'll take you like five minutes or less, but something that'll take you two or three hours, like Mark's Gospel. Just shut yourself away, read it out loud, and see the benefit of, of, of that. The last two are really about rebuilding concentration. I guess this, the one about mealtimes is about rebuilding concentration as well. Rebuilding concentration on people and on things that really matter.